there are no pressing announcements other than keep praying for moisture. We have the call to worship to come before our Lord and Savior. And therefore, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. If you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. stand and let us sing hymn 253.
are thankful, God, that we can fulfill your commandments by your grace and power, Lord, although at times we feel that has not been the case, and yet here we are this morning, as you have called us here to worship you, to hear your word, to sing praises before you, God. May we be encouraged thereby that you are indeed working in us, Lord. Although we are not perfected, as we will be in heaven, nevertheless, God, we are growing in sanctification. Help us to continue to praise and honor you, and Lord, to continue to bless your holy name. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 62. Inside the bulletin. Truly, my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a, bow, as a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge in God. Surely men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Let us pray. Indeed, God, you are the rock upon which we rest, and although we are called in various and sundry ways and degrees to help one another, to do our duties in our life and our callings, Lord, and thus rely upon one another to some extent, ultimately, God, may we always put complete trust in you, no matter what may happen when we have our partial trust in others. 
Help us, we pray, God, to be encouraged therein that you are with us and you have covered us with the blood of Christ Jesus, Lord. And you are guiding us in your special providence through your goodness, God Almighty, that we praise and honor you for the bodily care that you've given us over and over in superabundance. As we read a little bit in the psalm, God, that indeed if we have increased in riches, may we not depend upon them. You have given us security of our body and health, Lord, in various degrees to be sure, but still health, shelter, food, and a plenitude of access to a lot of these things, Lord, at least over our lifetime. These are the things, God, we bless and praise you for your goodness toward us, undeserved goodness. And we pray and thank you, God, for our family and our friends, for those you've given us in our lives to be with us, and for our church, Lord, and for our jobs, and everything else, God. We can count them and write them down, and, and we should, various times in our lives, to be reminded again, of how we ought to honor you and stand on all the goodness that you've bestowed upon us in your providence. And even so, Lord, we still recognize our sins. We still must flee from them and repent of them for being ungrateful, if that's the problem, for being forgetful of the blessings that we have, if that's the problem, or whatever else it may be and other sins that we struggle with, and that we would continue to confess them before you, knowing that you have given us the gospel promise of forgiveness through Christ Jesus our Lord and that we can carry on in our walk in life. We lift up our concerns, Lord, and our prayers before you for the likes of first responders and those in the military, Lord, for Simon and for Tolly and others, God, that you would continue to protect them, that you would help them, Lord, to persevere in such an ungodly environment, and, God, that they be protected from temptation and harm, that they would have and continue to seek out what they can, Lord, good access to the Word of God, to preaching, to reading the Bible, to Christian fellowship, Lord. Protect them, we pray, and watch over them. And bring them safely to us again in your providence. And we lift up others who we know of and friends who are in the medical and the uh, police field and, and like fields, Lord, where they have to deal with difficult things in life or they have to see the effects of the fall uh, over and over again, God, that you would protect them and watch over them, Lord. We're thankful that we have police officers and and those in the medical field and elsewhere, God, uh, who are around us and helping us in our time of need, that can be there when we need them. We pray, God, that these things will continue through your good providence towards us. We pray especially, God, for those who are Christians in those fields, that you would protect them, body and soul, again, from temptation, and that they would be a light in a dark world, God, uh, to point to Jesus Christ and to highlight and remind people what they're seeing is the effects of sin. Other people's sins, their own sins, or whatever the case may be, God, and thus, Lord, they have evidence before them of their need of repentance. We ask that you would continue to be with our brothers and sisters in those career fields. We pray for our church leaders, God, in their own ways as first responders with respect to our souls, that they would be alert and aware of the dangerous doctrines that are propagated in America, are freely flowing in and out of churches across this land, even our own churches, Lord, that they would be able to see them and stop them and warn their sheep and protect them, comfort them as well with the gospel of Christ Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, to withstand and to see, Lord, these dangers. Not just the pastors, but ourselves, God. We have your word, we have your spirit, as we will read this morning. And thus, Lord, may we be protected from the doctrines of devils and of false teachings and false practices as well. Help us, we pray, and help our church leaders especially, God, in our church and our Presbytery of the Dakotas as well, and all the churches therein, in these states, and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, their leadership as well. 
which is our leadership, uh, would be alert and watchmen on the tower uh, to warn and to protect and to fight back against such lies. And for all the churches that name the name of Christ Jesus across this land, we pray, God, help your church be purified uh, to hold on and retain the truth of your word no matter what and not be embarrassed thereby. May they, Lord, be brave and bold pastors, as we see exemplified in the life of the apostles in the New Testament, where they're described several times by Luke as being open or bold and free with your word, Lord, and not embarrass God. Help us, we pray, to have such leaders and continue to support them and pray for them. We pray for our Christian education, God, spirit of truth and illumination, that we may know more of your word, to repeat and go over what we've learned and forgotten over time. For these things happen, Lord. You've called the vast majority of your church to work in this world, to take care of the things of this world, and to have a job throughout the week, Lord, that's outside the church. And to that extent, Lord, we will be busy with those and be experts in those fields and know what we need to know for those jobs and callings and vocations. Lord, our responsibilities before you. And thus, we will forget these things. Help us, Lord, to go over the basics, to go over what we need to know of your word, uh, to memorize your word, and to read it, our God, and to pray in accordance to your will as found in your word. Help us, we pray, God, to educate one another as we can with parents at home, instructing the children in your word to read the Bible, to help them memorize the Bible, and understand uh, these things, Lord, so they can grow in the doctrine and knowledge of grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would continue to grow with them. Help the churches, Lord, to instruct their people in your truth, to apply it in their lives, God, not to make it mere abstractions that float in the air, uh, but to make it real in their lives, God, we help, we pray, and that you help them by your Spirit to apply them accordingly. Uh, Lord, even if we don't always agree, may we struggle together as churches to do what we can with your word and to be encouraged again by the gospel of Jesus Christ to pronounce him and him only. Lord, Jesus Christ and him crucified as our Savior to redeem us from our fallenness, Lord. And when we fail in sin, and don't apply your law as we ought to, God, we can always and should always flee to Jesus Christ and ask for strength in our time of need. Help us, we pray, Lord, to grow in our understanding, to grow in Christian education, to help others grow in Christian education, Lord, that our churches would grow and multiply, not just in knowledge, but also numerically. God Almighty, we pray for your glorious namesake. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. 
We thank you, God Almighty, for the ability to give these tithes and offerings. And guide our church and multiply their usage for your kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen. Let us sing Psalm 143b. 143b.
seated. We have the reading of the Ten Commandments. Let us say it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what Man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God 
the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not words which, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they be known nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let us pray. In these words, Lord God, we are thankful for the truth expressed here and um, a strong way of the language of wisdom and mystery, Lord, and how we have wisdom but it's a wisdom that's mysterious, unknown, unseen to the world. In fact, it's the opposite to the world, as Paul expressed in the prior chapter. It's foolishness to them. Help us, we pray, God, that we would not be embarrassed of this foolishness, but rather embrace it, for it is truly wisdom. It is misnamed as foolishness, Lord, by those who hate it, who have not the Spirit of God. We're thankful, Lord, for having that Spirit, that we may see that truth and that wisdom that is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Amen. What does having the mind of Christ mean that Paul mentions at the end of the chapter? Why is it contrasted with the natural man? And how does the Spirit fit into all of this? The answer to these questions varies from Christian to Christian. To some it means some vague notion of God leading them by the Spirit. To others it means special insight into the Lord's secret plan for their lives. For others it is shorthand for liberal policies to undermine the church. But what we read here in Paul is none of these things. To have the mind of the Lord in similar language is not about secret things. Only special Christians can know and not other Christians. Nor is it a vague feeling of being close to God. Rather, it is about the knowledge of salvation. It is about Christ and who he is and what he has done for his people. It is about justification, adoption, sanctification, and righteousness. Let us look more closely at what Paul writes here for our edification. He says here in the first point, verses 6 through 12, we speak wisdom of God's mystery. We speak, perhaps he's speaking of the pastors as a whole, all leaders of the church. Here he may be referring to Apollos and others from chapter 1, verse 12, where we read Paul putting words down of their mouth, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, where they had factionalism and division within the church. And perhaps Paul is saying, look, all of us here, we speak the same thing. There should be no such divisions. And this, we who speak, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Uh, that word there is sometimes translated perfected. By, by perfected, it almost always means mature. That is the opposite of childlike knowledge and maturity. It's a relative term. It's not an absolute term. When he speaks wisdom to those who are mature, they can be immature in other parts of life, to be sure. And we run across this in the next chapter, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as babes in Christ. Babes are the opposite of mature. So, especially with respect to Factionalism and division in the church, they are childish in their desires in some regards, although they may mature in other regards. So here he's talking about the maturity of understanding and receiving the wisdom of God. That wisdom is 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. He speaks that wisdom among those who are mature, that is, those who can handle the truth in an adult manner. Not necessarily his audience, because he just called them childish in chapter 3. The wisdom of God in particular, where he picks up that theme, he mentions that word over and over again. Uh, Often we understand it as truth plus application, how to use knowledge of this world for our good. But the emphasis here is upon truth. That is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in contrast to the lies of the Jews and Greeks. In chapter 1 we read, For the Jews require or request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So he's playing off the Greek use of Sophia, or wisdom, and saying Christ is the true wisdom. Christ is the truth, in other words. So wisdom here is more narrowly the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and not what the world wants, the Gentiles want, the Greeks, or the Jews who want miracles and signs and wonders. Rather, our Lord and Savior, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The chapter 1, as you recall, starts out with baptism. And quickly goes into preaching and teaching, and how these have become divisions in the church. I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus. I'm better than you. I sit over here in the church, perhaps. I hang out with this crowd over here, and it's, it's so bad, it's so obvious that Paul writes about it in a public manner. And he goes into preaching and teaching. Apparently, they were attached to them, not just because of the baptism, but also because of the way they preached. They were wowed by their preaching style of some sort or other. And then he goes into the gospel and says, it's not about baptism as such at the end of the day, or how one preaches and how eloquent they are, but what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is wisdom. That is truth. He says in verse 17 of chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world, and that is what he will preach. In verse 21 of chapter 1, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What? What message is preached? Obviously the gospel. And not just the gospel in general, that is the good news and Christ has done wonderful things, but apparently they were embarrassed about Christ dying on the cross or something was going on there because this is another theme that's unpacked in these verses. In verse 18 we read of the message of the cross. Obviously if there's a cross, there's a crucifixion. It's shorthand for Christ's crucifixion. Verse 23 of chapter 20, of chapter 1, we read, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. So there he brings it up again. You're missing the point. Why are you having these divisions? We should, we should unite over the gospel, and even of Christ crucified, the particulars of the gospel. And then chapter 2, verse 2, we read, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. That's three times already in so many verses that he mentions Christ and Him crucified, or the cross. And then in verse 8 of chapter 2 we read, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have what? Crucified the Lord of glory. Crucified the cross. This emphasis here It may be that 
those at Corinth were embarrassed by this doctrine. Something was going on there, so Paul wanted to highlight this truth. This truth that he calls a mystery, verses 7 through 9. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. That which is hidden or unknown from others is the idea here. The hidden wisdom of God, and of course we know the wisdom of God is but shorthand here and his language for the gospel, for Jesus Christ in him crucified. And that wisdom is hidden, unseen, before the rulers of this age, as he said in verse 6, and he picks up again, here in verse 8, had they known, they would not have crucified him, but these same people, the rulers of this age. This wisdom that's hidden from the world, the gospel that is hidden from the world, was ordained from eternity past. God arranged for our salvation, for that is the gospel in eternity past. Hidden wisdoms which God had ordained before the ages for our glory before any time that we find ourselves in. Only through his wisdom could he bring salvation. Only through his knowledge could anyone be saved. God initiates it. And initiated it from eternity past. And he says it like it's so obvious. But it's just in passing that he describes this glorious truth to us. Because it highlights not just the sovereignty of God, which is a wonderful thing to be sure, but the mercy of God, that is independent of our works, of our obedience, of our sincerity. And it's all based upon his good pleasure to save us to the uttermost. Again, from eternity past, echoing what he unpacks more clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Now, about these rulers of this age, or the powers that be. Perhaps we can use a a synonym. Are the influencers and powerful men of this age. Even those who claim they have spiritual knowledge. Like the Greeks, the philosophers, the great thinkers, Aristotle and Plato and others. But of course we know it's especially the Jews. The Jewish leaders who had power in this age, that is, this present world we find ourselves in before heaven. How do we know he's talking about the Jews? He says in verse 8, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, who crucified Jesus, the Jews. They did not see the truth. They did not want to see the truth. It was darkness to them. They were seeking a sign. They wanted miracles. Of course, Jesus gave miracles. They still didn't believe. And why? Why did God give us this wisdom that is darkness to the world, that is hidden, and that was ordained from eternity past? God gave it to us for our glory. Verse 7. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. For our benefit. For our good. Not that we are supposed to be glorified above God and that somehow we are better than Him. Not in that sense of exaltation, but of honor, of a privilege. 
that we get to participate by God's free mercy in His glory and the greatness of heaven. And we will rejoice the redemption that we have. It's for our good. It's for His people. That's why He has given us this mystery and illuminated this ministry to us. And then He quotes in verse 9, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. So there's this gospel wisdom that the world calls foolishness. And it's a wisdom that's a mystery or hidden and dark to them. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified Christ, but rather bowed down before him. And that mystery is of such that no eye has seen nor ear has heard the things which he has prepared for those who love him. That is, even though, he's in anticipation here, we receive the Spirit, verse 10, have truth and illumination, there's still some things we don't fully understand. He's quoting the Old Testament to remind his audience that this mystery was not sudden, that the gospel and how unclear it can be to some people was not something that's confusing. It was predicted, in fact. He's quoting Isaiah 64.4, possibly coupled with Isaiah 65.16. What happens sometimes with the quotes of the New Testament with Paul and others, they'll quote a combination of verses because they know the Bible so well. We do the same thing. We have that in our songs at times, don't we? And our hymns. And not only do they quote them, he'll sometimes quote the Latin, excuse me, the Greek, Latin, Latin, Vulgate, the Greek, the Septuagint, when they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek. And he'll quote the Greek and mix it with the Hebrew sometimes. It's kind of interesting when you see how he uses it. Nevertheless, he still goes to the Bible, he still quotes the substance and the meaning of it to apply it to his audience and thus showing us the way in which we can learn to apply and use the Bible, especially the Old Testament. So in other words, Paul is not making this up. It's Old Testament doctrine taught in the Old Testament era of a future age of the Gentiles joining the church. And of course, that has collapsed in the Old Testament prophet's vision often, this present age with the age of heaven. It's just, they're just seeing the same thing, like a flat picture that we know, if you saw to the side, is three-dimensional, and has depth and covers this present age and the age to come. And that picture, of course, is a picture of the glory of the gospel. Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard. We don't fully grasp is what he's saying. Obviously, we have seen and heard of a good news, of heaven, of Christ. We read it in the Bible. So here we have an exaggeration, a highlighting of how little we're going to understand the future heaven. For them in the Old Testament, and it's a description of how little they're going to understand. And they come to Christ in the New Testament, of course, and they're, they're blind, they're confused. Like, what in the world? I, I, didn't, I didn't see this coming. Gentiles? No more Israel? Full redemption? No more temple? The things which God has prepared for them, it has not entered the heart of man. It has entered the heart of those who do see and understand, but not fully. So although this text can uh, be used to, of course, as Paul is using it here, perhaps in a twofold manner, that here's evidence from the Old Testament, people won't fully get it. These people didn't fully get it. If they got it, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. This prophecy mentions that. But also, we, we don't fully get it. We don't fully understand heaven, the, the depths of the glory of what that looks like. It's a dream, but a very vague dream often to us, because this world is so real to us. I mean, streets of gold and mansions of plenty for everyone. 
No pain, no sleepless night, no tears, no death. We too don't fully grasp it. But we do grasp it in a way the unbelievers have no understanding of it. Then he describes the source of this mystery in verses 10 through 12. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? The source of this mystery to many is not a mystery to us, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Although the rulers of this age did not accept it, did not see it, did not comprehend it in a saving way, we do. Even though we don't fully understand heaven to come, we know what is true and good, and that is Christ and Him crucified. And that truth is given to us by and through the power of His Spirit. In verse 10, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And so we have an overlap here of themes, which is not uncommon when people speak and write. So you'll see I'll have 10 through 12 here, but then pick up 10 in the second point here about the Spirit. It's the mystery, and then he brings in the Spirit, saying, the Spirit, this is the reason why you understand what the rulers of this age never understood. Not because you're special, but because the Spirit of God has come to you, and through His power and might, He has illuminated or opened the eyes of your mind to see and to receive Jesus Christ. This is how the Corinthians can know the wisdom of God. This is how we can know the wisdom of God. Not because we are wise in ourselves, but because it is through the Spirit. God has revealed them to us, not that we have found God. Yes, from our perspective, in time and space, we, we find, we, we're looking for God, we find God, if we have the Spirit moving within us. That's true. Man does give a response. But at the end of the day, that is only because God is behind that response. And it is God who deigned to reveal to us, and thus the sovereignty of God is highlighted in verse 10, through His Spirit, that we say, I see it, I understand what I'm reading here in the Bible, and I believe it. We speak words of God's Spirit, verses 10 through 16. We have a spirit, the spirit of God, who gives the spirit of revelation, the spirit of illumination. That is, he gives revelation, he gives illumination, understanding. Revelation is truth. I use that word in the sense of truth, that which is revealed in the word of God. The spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He's explaining why the spirit here, not just that we have the spirit, but why the spirit The Spirit knows all things, even the deep things of the Godhead. Ergo, the Spirit is God, for only a member of the Godhead can understand the depths of God. How deep are the things of God? A couple miles deep? 3,000 light years? Infinite. The depths of God's knowledge and of Him is infinite. And yet the Spirit searches these things. Yes, even the deepness therein. This is one of the proof texts used in the confession about the divinity of Christ, of the, of the Holy Spirit, excuse me. That which has the attributes of God is God. One of the attributes of God is being able to plummet the depths of eternity in terms of knowledge and of power. Here is specifically knowledge and revelation, right? And the Spirit can do that. For what man can know the things of man except the Spirit of man 
which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So now he's explaining, let me give you a reason why the Spirit of God. He's the one who's going to give you illumination. You're not like the rulers of the age. They don't understand the mystery. You understand the mystery because you have the Spirit of God. Verse 10. And that Spirit can reveal it to you like the Spirit of man can reveal truth to a man. So in other words, he's arguing by analogy, by comparison, which highlights the intimate relationship between the Spirit and the Father. Just as a man knows things of himself because the Spirit of a man which is in him, he knows himself, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit is so closely related to the Father, because he's part of the Trinity, that he can know the plans of the Father. Like your own soul knows your own plans. So don't get hung up on the differences between analogy, because it's an analogy, right? A comparison that knows that there are differences involved. The difference being, I'm not a trinity, I have a soul that's just part of my body. It's within, you know, within, within me, I have a body and a soul. Here, the emphasis, in other words, is the intimacy and the knowledge therein. We can know the gospel mystery, verse 12, because we have received the Spirit. The Spirit who knows the deep things of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. What things are those things that we should know? The wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? The gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is a blessing and an honor that has been revealed to us by the Spirit, the Spirit of revelation and of truth. He says, here it is. And we have that knowledge freely things that have been freely given to us. Again, highlighting the grace of God. Not because we deserve it. Not because God is indebted to us. But it's freely given. Not us getting it against, from God's perspective, against highlighting. It's God Almighty and His mercy and His sovereignty. You don't have to use the word mercy. You don't have to use the word grace. But it's clearly here and freely given. Or that God has revealed them to us. God is the initiator. But it's not just revelation in the sense of this is the truth and the Spirit gives us the Word of God, the Bible, and here's the truth. So it's the Spirit of revelation, the Holy Spirit is. But more specifically, the Spirit of illumination. Many people can read what is revealed by the Spirit in his Bible and have, and yet walk away in darkness. And thus the Spirit has another function, the Spirit of illumination, that is of opening the eyes and making us understand that revelation that we have read. We read part of that in verse 12 and verse 13. These things also we speak, not words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. It's the Spirit of God who goes beyond just the revelation and giving you the truth therein, the content, that's revelation, but the understanding of it, teaching. Teaching goes further and says, here are the facts and here are how they apply to you, my audience. And the Spirit opens our hearts and our minds and teaches us with the truth of the Word of God. The Spirit, in other words, and knowledge and illumination are connected together. We have received the Spirit which is of God, that we might know. I combined a few of the main verses there, continuing the thought. that, And thus we teach the Spirit, thus through teaching the Spirit illuminates us. He opens our understanding of the gospel. When people say, I get it, and submit to Jesus, it's because the Spirit shone in the light of the truth of the preaching therein. We 
the things we also speak, the pastors and preachers of Paulus and others, or just in general, all, all leaders of the church, not in words with men's wisdoms, but the Holy Spirit teaches that revelation, and more than that revelation, ultimately the illumination the Spirit gives to us because they are spiritually discerned, discerned by the power of the Spirit, and that we compare spiritual things with spiritual. But he who is spiritual, verse uh, 15, judges all things. That is, he who has the Spirit of what? Truth and illumination is the implication there. Not just having the knowledge, but understanding it and saying, I see it. It's no longer dark to me. It is a light to me. It's no longer obscure and a mystery. It is clearly revealed. That's assumed in this whole conversation here, right? Even though it doesn't use the word illumination. That's the opposite of darkness or mystery, right? As we read in verse 6. All these themes are interwoven here by Paul's writing. He has very tight writing and reasoning in these verses, as he often does in his letters. Because he has, he assumes so much out of his audience, (laughs) so much knowledge of the Old Testament, so much knowledge that he also gives of theology. And this is part of it. That we have here, in all these verses, um, a fairly detailed expounding of the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. That's what we're reading here. He's, perhaps we can call him the silent member of the Trinity, because everything we read about is God, which is usually shorthand for the Father, and, the, and Christ and Him crucified, and that's the central theme of the Gospel. But there's also the Holy Spirit. He's silent in so far as you don't read as much about Him, but He is powerful to be sure. It's through Him that we have the sealing of our salvation, Ephesians 3.14. And through Him we have the illumination of our salvation, that we see and and understand is no longer a darkness or a mystery to us. Why? Because we have received, through the Holy Spirit, these truths. That's illumination. If you are born again, you have been illuminated through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are a spiritual man or woman in Christ. You discern things spiritually, that is, by the power and through his might. Not in some mystical, weird, charismatic way. It's not what he's talking about. It's all about knowledge, wisdom, the gospel and Christ crucified. Men speak and the spirit moves. So you have a close relationship here in these texts. He just assumes that. We're going to speak. What are we speaking? We're speaking the truths of God's word and the spirit's there. And the spirit will teach you if he so wills, as we know. And will open hearts and minds. In the contrast there in verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. There's that word again, foolishness. He's explaining why the rulers of this age didn't get it. He said that earlier. Then he says, this is why we get it, because we have the Spirit. And he goes back and says, this is why they don't get it. He says natural man, which is just another way of saying of the earth or physical in contrast to the supernatural man, supernatural in the sense of you have the spirit of God. You're born again. That's it. It's another way of speaking. I wish we could take that language back. It's our language. It's the Bible language. And it doesn't mean anything charismatic. Since that which is of the earth is earthy or natural and fallen, so he's taken as a given. Anyone born into this world, and this world as such, as we know in Romans 8 and elsewhere, is a fallen condition. To be natural, to be of this world, is to be fallen. So it's shorthand for saying an unbeliever or a fallen man. It's not another way of Gnosticism, which some people take it to mean, that is, 
things of this world are evil inherently. Oh, you're a bad person. You like food. God, God gave us food to enjoy. He even says that in the Bible. That's not what he's talking about. It's shorthand. And Paul does this pretty consistently through his letters and epistles. Shorthand for unbeliever of the fallen world, of the fallen nature. Spiritually discerned is to say illumination by the Spirit. Not your spirit, the Spirit of God within you. This is why you understand things, because it is revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 10, he hasn't changed that. The theme of these verses is Christ and Him crucified, not esoteric teaching, but what is found here in the Bible. Thus, all Christians are spiritual in that context. Although you may be a little immature, as we read here in chapter 3 for the Corinthians, you're still spiritual. Spiritual, judge in the mind of the Lord, verses 15 to 16 here as I wrap up. We read 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, in contrast to the natural man who can't judge things, that is, what things? All things, all spiritual or moral or truthful things of the gospel, the word of God. I mean, even then, when he talks about Christ and Him crucified, as I argued before, he's not just saying that's, that's all you can literally talk about. He talks about all kinds of other things in his own letter here in Corinthians. It's ultimately all revealed revelation in the Word of God. Are the things that we can discern, we can judge, we can evaluate, as that word means. And the rest of the world's like, what? That's just gibberish. What are you babbling about? And worse than that, as we've seen in the case of Christ, they hate it. It convicts them so much, they crucify the Lord of glory. And so the judge in the matters of the Bible, of the soul, and of salvation, or examine, is what all Christians who have the Spirit of God do. We can examine the Bible truth, that is, the mind of the Lord. Verse 16. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no man, that is, no natural man, no one. Obviously, we have to judge one another because we have church discipline, as Paul argues in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> it's no natural man. It's the only thing that makes sense. You're not judged by natural man. Don't let them, listen. Don't let them judge you. Don't, don't listen to them. Listen to the Word of God. Don't let them come after you and tear down your conscience. Stand upon Christ and Him crucified. He lived and died for you. And that is parallel he gives a reason, for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. To be spiritual-minded is to have the mind of Christ. To have the mind of Christ, another way of saying we have the gospel. It's the mind of our Lord concerning our salvation. He has not changed the theme. He uses a lot of words because of his audience, and influenced by the Greeks there. They're in Greece. <laughs> Massive influence, and about wisdom, so he picks up the wisdom thing. You want real wisdom? I'll give you real wisdom. It's the gospel. You want real spiritual knowledge? I'll give you spiritual knowledge. It's the gospel. It's Christ Jesus and him crucified. And so here at the end where he finishes up somewhat and begins now a new theme, although he picks up the similar idea here of a natural man of foolishness and the like and calls them babes in Christ, he is highlighting here that we have the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit has the things of God. That's what he's talking about. Or we could give a 
paraphrase, the spiritual man can judge all the things of the Spirit of God because he has the Spirit, yet he himself cannot be judged by any man that is by any natural man on these matters. They do not have the truth. We do. We have the mind of Christ, the gospel as revealed in the Word of God. Praise the Lord for the Spirit of truth who opened our eyes that we may discern the glories of Christ and Him crucified. Let us pray. We thank you and praise you, God Almighty, that we have your Spirit. We are spiritual, Lord, and we can judge spiritual matters, that is, the truth as found in the Word of God, that we can examine, in other words, and see and say, yes, this is true. Not as though we sit over the Word of God, but rather, Lord, the Word of God comes to us and says, submit. And so we say, yes, we will submit. Help us, Lord, to speak to others in these matters, that they too may be born again and no longer be natural, but see the truth of your word and may no longer be a mystery to them. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Uh, 394, 394. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.